Hey everybody, welcome back to the Elevated Project Podcast. I'm Mike Costelli. This will be episode number 38. So today I got something a little bit different. I recorded a podcast with a gentleman named Eric Elliott out of Calgary. He's a nutrition coach and a CrossFit coach there. He has a podcast called Refocus Nutrition. Eric's gotten super busy with life. We recorded this episode. Uh, It's got some awesome content in it. So I asked him, hey, do you mind if I share this on the Elevated Project podcast? So this episode is courtesy of Eric Elliott. We talk about performance nutrition and a whole bunch of other topics within here. We get into some really good discussion. I hope you guys enjoy. All right, guys, we are back with another episode. Uh, this week we have on uh, Mike Estelli. Mike's been on twice before. We've talked about PDs in CrossFit. We've talked about just his career on uh, his trajectory with Nova 3. Um, but this week we, I, I had him on because I think I wanted to talk a little bit about performance, uh, performance nutrition because I think it's something that's in CrossFit specifically is very, very, very overlooked uh, in terms of what that means. and you know, there's a hundred different rabbit holes to go down. Even when I was making notes about this, uh, I, I had, you know, different areas that I wanted to go with it um, because it's, it's such a big thing and it's such a, a key aspect of, of nutrition because, you know, with my nutrition clients and who I check in with a daily basis, it's, it's very easy to just get caught in the nuts and bolts of like, well, what's your weight this week and things like that and not uh, getting caught up in that. So, wanted to have Mike on and talk a little bit about his background and that because I know he's he's talked so much about it and he's very very direct in terms of the the distinction that performance nutrition is not the same as aesthetic nutrition although it have it may have overlapping uh, qualities within it um, and practices within it it's not the same thing so kind of we were just we were just talking before I hit record here and I wanted to start off with talking about how you approach uh, someone who first comes to you with a goal of saying, you know, I say, say I'm just coming to you and say, I want to work on, you know, being the best athlete I can possibly be. Uh, where do we go from there? And how do you unpack that to figure out if that's exactly what I want? Or if there's, if there's underlying wants and needs behind that as a client, Mike? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we, we kind of jumped in right into the conversation before you started to record and we had <laughs> shot a couple texts back and forth. Well, you had some questions and we kind of got into it and you're just like, Hey, this would be a great podcast topic. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a, this is a topic I'm really passionate about because it continually comes to the surface. And what I mean by that is um, like when I, when I take on a client, um, you know, I have like a standard, you know, target interview questions and, and you filled that out in the past. And one of the questions on there is like, what's your primary goal? And I don't think I can place enough emphasis on that because that is so critically important to, to the why, like, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you hiring me? Why are you sacrificing time, you know, to go to the gym, to sacrifice your social life, to do nutrition prep? Like, why are you doing this? Is it, and really what it comes down to is to oversimplify it. There's really three categories we can take a look at. We can look at, we're chasing performance, we're chasing body composition, and we're chasing health slash longevity. And really, yep. those are all three different things. And in my nutrition seminars, I have a very simplistic graph that has a couple different circles. And one of them's body composition, one of them's performance. And they generally go in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. The problem is a lot of people want both. And that's that's not that's not wrong. It's not wrong to want that. And you know, we got into this over text a bit with um the issue, and I don't want to go on a total tangent here because I could, the issue with social media, um, where we take a look at Instagram or we take a look at Facebook or whatever platform you like using. And it's like, you know, specifically with Instagram, we see nothing but the best of the best. And of course it's filtered and face tuned and everything, but we see these amazing athletes with amazing body composition. And we're like, yeah, man, I want that. And 
you know, to back up a bit within the mixed modal community, there is a line of thinking and once this is only my opinion, but there is a line of thinking that goes, if you train hard, the body composition will follow. And I've heard really good coaches say this, and I've seen really good athletes preach this, but it's not that simple. It's not work hard and you'll get what you want. You have to train smart and you have to look at things smart. And this is when it comes down to going back to, you know, the primary goal. I really have to thread that out of clients because a lot of people will come to me and they're like, Hey, I want to be, I want to be the best athlete in my gym, or, you know what, I want to make, you know what, I want to be a top tier, top 10 CrossFit athlete, whatever. And it's like, okay, so your goal is performance. Um, and sometimes as the console goes on, the other goals start come to surface, right? Where it's like, yeah, you know, summer's coming up and I'd really like to do a mini cut and, you know, I'd want to get lean, but I want to maintain, you know, I still want to get that, you know, uh, that 315 clean and jerk. And I'm just like, oh, we got a bunch of different things going on. Here. So, so, I mean, the, the nutrition goals or the nutrition setup for each of those is vastly different. It's vastly different. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people get deflated because they're training for performance and they like the gym that they go to. There's a huge sense of community, a huge sense of belonging. They have workouts tailored for them. They walk into the gym, the coach is telling them what to do, right? They love that aspect. And it's worked. It obviously is a model that works for enjoyment of the athlete. But when you're training for performance, you shouldn't be chasing body composition. And if someone's like, well, why, Mike? Why is that such a bad thing? Because you need to fuel as an athlete. And I, I kind of feel like a broken record because I say this a lot. I say this a lot to my clients. I've said this a lot on other podcasts. But I mean, to get into the nuts and bolts of it, when it comes down to it, when we talk about body composition, what are we talking about? We're talking about lean body mass, muscle. And we're talking about having lower levels of body fat, adipose tissue on your body. So we can actually see muscle definition. That is aesthetically pleasing, at least by society standards. You have to be in a caloric deficit for that to happen. You have to, right? You have to be expending more calories than you're taking in where your body's like, oh shit, okay. I don't have enough fuel coming in. Okay, I better use some of this body fat that's on me, right? And that's how, oversimplistic, but that's how we get lean. You're in a caloric deficit. Now, if we're talking about performance-based training, what are we doing? We are pushing the envelope on exercise-induced adaptations, whether it's aerobic, anaerobic, muscular endurance, max strength. You need to fuel for that. You need fuel to do the work and then... You need calories in the form of protein, fat, and carbs after the fact to recover from that so you can rinse and repeat. And one of the things that we had exchanged in the text, we talked about being in a caloric excess, having more calories coming in than you're expending. And as a performance-based athlete, this is a great thing. This is how you recover, right? If you're in a deficit, eventually you will start to break down, right? So this is one of the, one of those nuances where you have to have very, you have to have very clear and focused goals to know where your direction is going. And a lot of times, I mean, I try to get this out of my clients as much as I can, but there's a lot of times where people won't give up their performance-based training, but they still want to chase that body composition. And I'm not saying it can't be done. It can be done. Right. Um, it has the sacrifices too, right? Like I think, I think one of the things that that you kind of hinted at when you started in that in that the the field of uh, of those tri the triangulation of of goals, if you will, you know, your health, your aesthetics, your performance, all three of them have sacrificial impacts on each side of them, right? That I don't I don't think people understand right away. Like if we look at performance you have to understand that that's not healthy. Like yeah. performance yeah. In, inside of any, any competitive realm, whether that's bodybuilding, whether that's CrossFit, whether that's, you know, professional basketball, it's Le LeBron James spends a million dollars, or I think that, I think he said a million dollars on his body every year in terms of body work, nutrition, things like that. Mm -hmm. Like that's not, it's not a sustainable method. There's a reason they don't play until they're a hundred years old. They, they do the things they do 
for as long as they can. And then they go back and they have to change their goals that way. So, that's, so I think that's important for people to understand is no matter what aspect you want to shoot as your main goal. So if it is performance, you have to understand that aesthetics are going to take a hit and you have to understand that health is going to take a hit. Um, Like you're not, you're not like the best way to to chase health is to be a monk and do nothing. Right. Like, and and not really have any stress on the body whatsoever. Well, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, if you think about it, chasing, so if those three goals there, so we've got performance, we've got body composition, we've got health longevity. If you chase those to an extreme at any one point in time, they're going to be unhealthy at a certain point. Right. Yep. So if looking for health now, you're like, okay, how can you be unhealthy if you're chasing health longevity for really chasing health and longevity? What, what are we looking at? We're looking at exercise less, eat less, probably some intermittent fasting, super low stress. I mean, that in and of itself is not unhealthy, but I don't really want to be calorically deprived and not have a high level of fitness just so I can live to 100. Very few people really want that, right? But that's well, and really- it, it, Yeah, and it, it, it also requires not having a ton of muscle mass because like having extra muscle mass is, a, is extra weight to carry around on the body. It totally. does strengthen the body, but it's, it's also, you also have to like feed that muscle to keep it on your body, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, centurion societies so 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 a society where they have a, a vast you know a larger number of people that live to be over 100 with good health and function um they're really they're just they're just doing a lot of like low level aerobic work on a daily basis they're not eating a ton of calories um they're, they're not large people they have smaller frames like we look at the okinawans or we look at the katavans right um mm-hmm. really as far as health goes, their markers for health and like cardiovascular disease and dementia and stroke, they're like all really low, right? But at the same time, it's like just average body composition by society standards and, you know, not a lot of muscle mass, not a lot of like high functioning athletic ability, but they're not chasing that, right? Yeah, 100%. And that LeBron James example is awesome because it's like, yeah, at the at that level, professional athletes are doing everything they can to sustain their career and not to blow up, right? And yep. you know, I see it within within the CrossFit community. Probably the best example of a guy who's doing everything, and I mean everything right, would be Fakowski. That guy has every single aspect of his life dialed twenty four hours a day, and he's mm-hmm. doing it because he's a professional. And it, it's yep. you could see what I've seen with him, it's mind blowing. I've never seen an organized athlete or someone that dialed, right? He's an accountant by, by trade. So of course he's got all <laughs> spreadsheets for everything, <laughs> doing everything possible because the sport itself is so demanding. Right. And yeah. The same- no. And, and he, and what would he say? What he's doing is, is, you know, going to produce like the longest life. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't agree to that. Right. Like he, and he knows he can't do this and do his fifties, at least at the level he's doing right now. Right. Yeah, it's just a matter of like sustaining, trying to sustain it for as long as possible, right? Yeah. And we know that if we're talking specifically about high-level CrossFit athletes, like outside of the outliers, um, average career length is like three to five years. It's relatively yeah. short, right? So, you know, you, of course, you know, within professional sport, you get like the guys like, you know, like Gary Roberts, you know, playing playing pro hockey till he's like in his 40s, right? And, you know, guys, <laughs> yeah. guys like that are usually they have a lot of other genetic cards in place that enable them to do that. But if you take a look under the hood, what have those guys done? Well, they're not like sitting back on the weekend, you know, pounding a couple beers with the boys. Like it's like everything they do surrounds their sport. And you know, the same thing goes for body composition. If we look at the extremes, the extreme of let's say bodybuilding, um, probably one of the most unhealthy things that anybody could do. And I would say even far beyond how demanding CrossFit is just the extreme of what bodybuilding is where the career of a professional bodybuilder is relatively short enhanced or natural. It doesn't matter because it's a very extreme sport. The training, and this is, you know, this is, I actually talked about this the other day with, uh, with somebody else, the, the actual training principles involved within bodybuilding are extremely healthy. Right. So it's like, like low level aerobic work that is highly sustainable for, for body composition, for health and longevity, but only if you don't take it to an extreme. Right. So 
I know we're kind of off on a little bit of a tangent here, but like every one of those could be unhealthy at one point. But when it comes back to primary goals for clients, like people need to really have a primary goal. And I, I can't emphasize that enough. It's like, because then your training should be focused on that goal. Your nutrition should be focused on that goal. And then you will more than likely see progress towards that goal. Right. It's when yeah. different, you're going in different directions and people get frustrated. Right. So I think that's the hard thing for a lot of people to unpack for themselves is that, you know, that idea of what they, what it is they really want. Cause there is so, like, you kind of hinted at it as well with the social media and stuff like that. Like there is so much distraction along the way of like, well, this is what I want. And then it's next, next week it's, this is what I want. I mean, that's also kind of the CrossFitters brain is they never, they can never almost fixate on one thing for a prolonged period of time. Cause like there's a new wad the next day kind of thing. But uh, I think that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to, to talk with you about as well. Cause I know that's something that, I heard on I heard you say I think it was on your podcast before was the the social media and macros I think is interesting uh, especially within the CrossFit world because there's so many people I think uh, you know one of the benefits of of the world we live in right now is people are able to communicate their platforms and you know share their stories and things like that but you have professional athletes right now within the CrossFit space who are putting out, you know, a day of eating, what I eat kind of thing. And then people just take it as truism that that's what they should eat then. Um, like, for example, like I, I could pick on a couple different athletes like Cole Sager. I remember he produced a YouTube uh, video, basically a day in the life of his eating. And his macros, he was eating calorically around 2,900. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very easy for someone like myself to be like, well, Cole trains for, you know, six hours a day. I only train for two. There's no way I should be eating over 2,700 calories. And I've been down that rabbit hole right now. But like right now, I train for a little over two hours a day and I'm eating upwards of 3,500 calories a day. So it's like it's very hard to, to figure out what that line is. So how do, you, how do you balance that question on a daily basis? Because I know that's something you're probably getting from clients a lot. And you mentioned that yourself. It, like people will ask you, you know, at the fire hall, like, how much are you eating a day? Well, then they try to base that how much they should eat off of what you eat, right? So how does that, how do you have that discussion? Well, I mean, I mean, the number one thing you need to let people know that, that I let people know is that it's like, it's very individual and people will yeah. want to, by default, like they'll, they'll see somebody that they either, they, they idolize or they have respect for, or they want to have a certain aspect of whatever they have, like, you know, and it's like, okay, I want to do what you're doing because what you're doing for you seems to be working. So mm -hmm. and it, 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 it's a very natural thing to be like, oh, okay. So if Mike eats 3000 calories, that means I should eat 3000 calories. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, <laughs> I get a lot of feedback because I do that on my Instagram. I, I post a lot of my meals and I post the macros, right? And, and people like that. So I get the feedback. They're like, hey, that's awesome. I'm getting a visual of what is what. It's like, okay, that meal is this many grams of carbs, fat, protein, calories. I'm like, okay, cool. But then people are like, okay, but you're like, you're 46 years old and you're eating 3000 calories. So I'm 25. I should maybe be eating 5,000 calories because I'm training twice as much as you. And I'm like, ah, you know, it doesn't work like that. Like we are truly all very individual snowflakes. Um, I've had female athletes who are like 115 pounds eating up to like 3000 calories. And they're like, Mike, I can't put on weight. And then I've had six foot four, two. So this is the most extreme case I've ever personally had. I had a guy who was six foot four, 250, actually really good CrossFitter, but he knew he was way too heavy for the sport. Um, and he wanted to get down to like 220, 225. He's like, I can be competitive at that weight. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're still a big, heavy machine, but let's try it. Um, we started him off 4,000 calories based on certain formulas. I'm like, okay, we're going to start you here. And there's lots of other reasons why we started him there eventually got him down to like 2,100 calories training twice a day, six days a week. And I would say that that is an absolute formula for blowing up an athlete, but he, sure. he compensated extremely well, right? Very much an outlier, right? But the right. point in that is like, everybody's really individual and you have to have a starting point and there's nothing. Now I say this hesitantly, there's nothing wrong with trying things. It's like, oh, I see Cole eating like 3,000 calories. I'm going to try that, right? And you might try it and be like, shit, I'm getting fat. Okay, this isn't working. 
Um, <laughs> you always have to have a lot of trial and error and it takes a long time to figure out what works for you as an individual. I mean, a coach can very much speed that process up, right? By having like, a, you know, an outliers look at what you're doing and what you're eating and giving suggestions and guidance, but it's very much trial and error. And at the same hand, that'll change from year to year. It's like what I eat now is different than what I ate last year. And then from four years ago, it's totally different. And it's like, it's based on your stress, your training, your age, your gut mm-hmm. health, all that stuff, right? Like it's always going to change, but it's, it's when I start clients off, it's like, I have, and you've been through this process. I have a couple formulas I use and I, I clarify that these are just starting formulas. Like you can't take a human being, jam them into like a Harris Benedict formula and expect it to be totally awesome. and going to work like right off, right out of the chute. Sometimes. Yeah. Not oftentimes no. And that's when it's like sort of the dialing and trialing and error. And it's like, okay, we're going to adjust this, adjust this till we figure out, okay, finding someone's maintenance calories is not that easy right? Especially within a sport like CrossFit, where it's very constantly varied and mixed modal, and there's lots of different stressors happening all the time. And that might fluctuate, that might go down. Um, but without being too long winded, it's like, yeah, everybody's different. Like I've, there's times I've been at 2100 calories for extended periods of time. Um, there's times I've been at 4000 calories, which is really not that much fun. Um, despite what people think, it's like, I would rather be in a deficit than I'd rather overeat for sure. Um, it's much easier to handle. Um, but, uh, but maintenance is like, it'll, it'll fluctuate and change. Right. So. No, I think that's an interesting point too. And you're right that you, I have gotten that, uh, like even talking about how much food I eat in a day, people think, well, that's great. You get to fit all those things in, but it's also like, if it's a bit of a, like people lose sight of the fact that it's also responsibility at that point to eat that much. Right. Because you're not food, no, no longer necessarily always becomes fun. It has to be something that like, if you're going to train that hard and you're going to do that to your body, you have to put the appropriate amount of fuel in the, in the tank. Otherwise don't expect fitness or, or results or whatever you want to call it to come out on the other end. Right. So I think that's an interesting one that a lot of people get. It's like, you're not, there's going to be times when you don't really want to eat that much and you're not that hungry, um, but you're going to have to do it anyway. So well, and that's, that's yeah, I mean, that's something that we had talked about a bit where we talked about being in a caloric excess for a performance-based athlete. And that's really the probably next to sleep. That's the number one controllable factor that you can do for your recovery is eat mm-hmm. an appropriate amount of calories. Because I mean, the, the muscle protein synthesis demands, the glycolytic demands, the cortisol endocrine demands, really we're, we're trying to offset that damage that we've done in the gym so we can adapt so we can have exercise induced adaptation and we need the calories to do that because and i've used this analogy before it's like it's like a stress compounded by a stress it's like you're going to the gym you're causing a bunch of stress to happen and then if you go home and let's say let's say your needs as a performance-based athlete i'll just pick a number are three thousand calories but you on a day-to-day basis are only eating 2,500, you're in a 500 calorie deficit per day and your body views that as a problem, as a stress. So you're compounding stress and you're never fully recovering from that workout. Now, big difference between performance-based athlete and let's say chasing body composition or being a bodybuilder, right? You want to purposely put yourself into that deficit because you're trying to, number one, maintain lean body mass, number two, lean out, right? So training is probably going to take a hit. You're in a deficit for a certain reason. Um, You have more room or a larger margin for error based on the type of training you're doing as a bodybuilder. Is it easy? No, I don't want anyone listening to think I'm saying bodybuilding is easy. It's not, it's a grind. To me, it's, it's analogous to training as like an endurance athlete. Like it's like monotonous day after day, same, same, same. Um, but your cup, your stress cup has a lot more room for that caloric deficit. As a performance-based athlete, you really don't have room for a caloric deficit. And I'll put people into slight deficits. And it's really like, imagine that we're walking on a fence and we have a fence that's like four feet wide. That's the bodybuilder's fence. It's like, oh, you know, I got lots of room for error. I can teeter, I can totter, but I'm not going to fall off. As a performance-based athlete, you're walking on like a three-inch wide fence. It's like you don't have much margin for error. 
you go into a slight deficit, ah, we can keep you on the fence maybe, but it's gonna be pretty tight. You have too much of a deficit and boom, you start to get overtrained really quick. And I deal with this on a day-to-day basis, right? I have mm-hmm. lots of performance-based athletes who are chasing performance, but they're like, hey, I want to lean out or, and there's, there's a lot of legitimacy to this. They're like, I need to lean out. So if we talk about, this is a little bit change of a direction of topic, but if we talk about, is it important for performance-based athletes to be lean? I would say, yeah, it is, but it comes at a cost, right? Um, you don't want to have a lot of non-functional mass. So, okay. Without being with, to be totally blunt, you can't be fat and be a performance-based athlete. It's not going to serve you. You're doing it's not going to help on those ring muscle-ups, no. No, I was just going to use that, yeah. If you're, like, you're doing 30 muscle-ups for time and you've got 20 extra LB sitting around your waist, <laughs> that's going to be hard, right? Yeah. If you're as lean as you can be but maintaining a high level of endocrine health, and I know I'm getting kind of wordy on that, um, that's where you want to be, right? But being like, and I've seen it, um, and I'm not going to throw out any names, but I've seen – really good performance-based athletes who have all of a sudden leaned out quite dramatically, whether they've changed their diet or they've, they've done something else. I don't know. Um, and it's interesting. You see their, their stats drop, right? The next year it's like, Oh, that person was like six last year. Look at it. They're sitting 22nd this year. That's really interesting. Is that a hundred percent correlated to the fact they've leaned out and they're overtrained? No. And I don't know. Um, but you, if you get too lean and, um, Kyle Ruth from Training Think Tank, and I always use his example on this. He's got a really good graph talking about um, the inverse correlation between extreme leanness and performance. When an athlete gets too lean, you run into issues, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that just comes from overtraining. There's just that demand. Your body just senses that it's too lean. It doesn't have enough energy. And all of a sudden, your endocrine system starts to take a hit and you just don't recover, right? But, yeah, talk a little bit about the, the benefits to having fat tissue. Because I think a lot of people don't actually understand that there is, ben- like, your endocrine system and your hormones rely on, you know, fat. I, I'm not saying you have to be morbidly obese, but yeah. you're, you do need to have fat tissue on your body for your hormones to be functioning, correct? Oh, absolutely, for sure. And it's really, it's not like you can directly test this and you, there's a specific lab marker to say, okay, yeah, right, right. you're your level of leanness is optimal and it's more like it's more subjective, right. Or observational where, um, everybody has sort of a, a genetic sort of set point of how lean. They yeah. are. And I'm going to continue to use him. I can use a couple of different examples here. So, um, like with, with Brent, he's like, I've always been lean. He's like, from a kid, I was lean. From the time I was a teenager, I was lean. He, I'm lean. He's like, I'm always going to be lean. And he's right. He's always lean. He's relatively lean compared to a lot of other CrossFit athletes, high level. And they're all relatively lean. Um, another one would be, and you might know her, Heather Gillespie, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, been to the games twice, phenomenal athlete. And, you know, one of my good friends, and she's like, yeah, you know, even when I was eating like Raymond noodles and like drinking beer, she's like, I was lean. I've always been lean, right? And there's a genetic component to that. Um, if somebody doesn't have that, getting to a level of leanness is going to come at a cost, right? And that's when it's almost like your body's like, like even if we're sitting at like 5% and I don't like to throw up percentages because people often don't understand what that actually looks like. And it is different for everybody, but like 5% body fat on a male would be like bodybuilder competition lean, right? Like that's extreme. Even at that level, you still have a massive amount of fat stores. So you have theoretically a lot of energy available, right? But you get to a certain level of leanness and the body's like, damn it, I'm too lean. I, I don't have enough energy stores in case I run into a famine. This is a stressful situation. And what actually happens here is like your cortisol gets upregulated, right? So it's like a stress response. And this is what I'm talking about when I say stress on stress. If we're coupling that with training, it's almost like there's this massive demand on the pregnenolone, progesterone, cortisol pathway. And eventually we run into HPA axis dysfunction. It's hypothalamic pituitary axis dysfunction. And part of this, like this can come from, this is a very complex topic. Um, This can come from overtraining. This can come from a lot of things, but being too lean or for more, more accurately, being in a caloric deficit for too long is an exacerbation of that. It's just an upregulation of more stress. It's stress on stress on stress. And 
the human body is really good in that short term acute stressful scenario. And I always use a scenario of like running from the bear, right? We're really good at that. It's like, holy shit, there's a bear, boom, I'm out of here, right? Mm. And we recover, we get faster, stronger from that and we learn. And then it's like, next time we see that bear, we're even faster, right? Where we're really not good is this long-term chronic stress response. Our body, our humans are just not evolved to deal with that, but we have it around us all the time. I mean, I, not going to get into all the other lifestyle stuff that can compound that. If we're just talking about training and just talking about nutrition, being in a caloric deficit, being really lean and trying to do performance-based training, eventually there comes a breaking point, right? And it's just, if you get too lean, there's going to be performance decreases. And I've seen it with athletes who have gotten really lean and they're just like, yeah, you know, I just, I don't have that fifth gear anymore. I don't have this this drive to push and it's like that rate of perceived exertion instead of being like a five out of 10, it seems like a 10 out of 10 right now. Right. And you take yeah. a look at their diet. You're like, man, you know, you looks like you're fueled appropriately and whatnot, but they're just, they're just too lean. Right. And that's a pretty rare problem. It's a rare problem for anybody to get too lean. Right. Especially with. Yeah. But yeah. It's, I would say it's, it happens a lot more with in conjunction with a lot of factors like just could be, you know, pushing through a heavy, a hard phase of training for a, a prolonged period of time. It, and, but it, it could also be the lifestyle thing too, right? Because I mean, that's a big thing that, you know, a lot of the, if you want to call them pro athletes on the, the pro side of the sport have gotten to is that they're afforded that ability to just train, right? Yes. And you, I think a lot of people overlook the importance of that. Because like, if you look at a guy like Brent, sure, he had a desk job uh, as an accountant before, but there's still that, that still plays an impact on his day-to-day -day stressors. Like whether he's worrying about work or whether he's just having to, you know, commute to and from that plays an impact on it as opposed to he walks up to his garage, he trains, he comes back inside, he mobilizes, he reads, and then he does it all again. Like it and eats and everything in between. Like the stressors and limiting the outside stressors beyond training. Like if you look at a professional bodybuilder, they train, they sleep and they eat. That's uh -huh. pretty much it. <laughs> like that's, no. that is pretty much it. Right. So like they're, the importance of limiting those stressors is, is super important. And one of the ones I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about more mm -hmm. was the emphasis on uh, quality nutrition, not just quantity. Cause we've been talking a lot about quantity right now, yeah, totally. but I think that's one of the things that again, we can pick a, pick on Bren or use Bren as an example, but he does really well, or at least the way he talks about it. But it's something that you focused on, I know with me, even initially was like, you can't just do if it fits your macros just because you have the calories. And I think that's a hard thing to juggle is people might say, you know, you're eating 3,500 calories. It's like, oh my God, you can fit, you know, a couple tubs of Ben and Jerry's in there. You can fit, fit whatever you want in there, right? Because you're, you're, have so much calories to work with. But yeah, talk a little bit about the importance of why that isn't the case within performance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that years ago I placed a lot of emphasis on with my consulting, probably far more than than the macros or the total quantity, and really that that serves people really well. Um, in the fact that by default, I'm going to spend a, just a little bit of time still talking about the total quantity. But when you just focus mm -hmm. on nutrition, let's say you're like, I'm eating like whole food, animal based protein, lots of nutrient dense vegetables and fruits and blah blah blah. Um, by default, you're going to have a higher protein diet that is very nutrient dense and depending what you're eating before, probably lower calorie. So very generally speaking, that really serves people well. It's like the fiber is high, nutrient density is high, all that kind of stuff. Um, but when we talk about macros and we talk about food quantity, we can, we can have a very acute effect on performance and body composition by dialing in the macro. So very acute, meaning very, very short, short term, we're going to get a response feedback right away. When we talk about the, the food quality aspect, and when we say food quality, what I'm talking about is micronutrient density, the vitamins, the minerals, the fiber, the things that are actually very hard to quantify. Um, are those important? Those are absolutely important. Do we get immediate feedback if we have them or we don't have them? No. Not at all. Yep. I've seen people go for very long periods of time eating completely horrendous diets, but, but have their macros really dialed. But, and there's a strong but here, eventually systems break down. And 
yes, I'm going to use Brent as an example, and, and I hope he actually listens to this. He'd get a laugh out of this. Um, he's he's really good. He always has been really good with his food quality. And one of the biggest reasons he always has a why. Why does he do it? Why does he concentrate on food quality? He's looking at offsetting inflammation, right? Um, so when he keeps his food quality really high, and he doesn't have any really known intolerances, but he will avoid gluten and he will avoid certain foods because he knows they'll negatively affect his gut health or how he feels and whatnot. He's trying to optimize everything, right? Um, over the long term, it, this is one that's, it's so hard to get data back from. It's like, okay, if I'm eating organic sweet potato and wild caught salmon and organic broccoli, does that pay me more dividends than if I'm going to Chipotle and getting burritos and eating Ben and Jerry's in the same quantity, is there a difference, right? And if you can tolerate those things, you just don't know. You don't know it, right? Sometimes people will feel it. They'll be like, yeah, I feel better. I feel better when I'm eating good quality food. Now, that could be a physical thing. It also could be very emotional or mental. It's like, I actually emotionally feel better if I'm eating good quality food because I know, quote unquote, it's good for me, right? So people might actually think they feel better when in fact it's not having an effect at all. More than likely it is. But um, I know I'm not really giving a hard answer here on this, um, on why we should do it. It's more of a long-term thing. So 20 years of eating garbage, but in a macro, in a very tightly controlled macro-based approach, um, is gonna yield vastly different results than eating 20 years of whole, unprocessed, nutrient-dense food with the caveat in a macro-based approach. I mean, you can still under-eat good food and you can overeat good food, right? Um, but there's gonna be big, big differences there. And we're talking like offsetting chronic disease processes, um, offsetting chronic inflammation, um, ensuring that all your energy system, or not your energy systems, your organ systems are, are functioning appropriately. Like, you know, there's something to be said about, um, about you know, whole food antioxidant content and offsetting inflammation, right? Um, that's about as deep as I can go on that. Cause I mean, there's really not a lot of data that sh shows it's like, yeah, it's, it's much better. I mean, we have a lot of nutritional science saying, Hey, broccoli's good. Hey, salmon's good. You know, um, you know, Hey, you know, you eat this cause it's got beta carotene. It's good for you. Um, we've got lots of science on that. Um, but then there's just not a lot of long-term studies on eating garbage within a calorie controlled environment and eating nutrient dense food. Right. At least that I'm aware of. Right. But yeah, there's just the, there's just like the, the internet N equals one studies, right. Like where, again, it just kind of goes in the, the wrong direction. Cause I mean, if you have, again, professional athletes have a, a platform to speak on, but if you see, I'll use Noah Olson cause I, I know him relatively well and he is a, a big proponent of kind of having fun. If you want, if you want to call it that. And you see him have a donut, you're like, well, why the fuck can I have a donut then? If he's doing it and like he's he's the second best in the world, I must be able to do the same thing, right? Like so, and it's he's like if you look at his body, the guy's a genetic freak, right? So like it's it's just not quite the same as making that comparison. And one of the things I I wanted to talk about as well was because like it, it it has a bit of a you know a paleoish vibe. Uh, in terms of like we want to eat whole foods, right? With that quality and that emphasis on uh, quality nutrition rather than just quantity. How do we balance that as an athlete with eating quality, but also eating enough, right? Because like one of the things that if you if you just put the standard American on a whole food diet, they'll probably lose weight because it's a bit of an appetite suppressant eating that much whole foods, like in terms of chicken breast, things like that, that are just going to be a lot more filling than uh, those micronutrient lacking foods, like processed foods and things of that nature. So how do you get to the point where, you know, you got to eat 3,500 calories a day, but at the mm -hmm. same time too, it's a little bit of a hunger problem throwing down, you know, copious yes. amounts of vegetables with a lot of fiber, also juggling in the fact that I think I think it's become, you know, very commonplace if you're, if you're trying to be even a recreationally competitive athlete to be doing multiple sessions a day. I know there's a couple of clients of mine uh, that'll be listening to this for sure that they do multiple sessions a day. I do multiple sessions a day and I can't, if I have three hours in between, I can't have 
you know, a ton of, a ton of broccoli sitting in my gut as I'm trying to get ready for that second session. Right. So yeah. it's a bit of a juggling act, right? Totally. No, this is a really valid point. And it's, I'm glad you bring it up. Cause we've been, we've been sitting here harping on, okay, yeah, you got to eat good quality food, good quality food. You can't eat garbage. You can't eat tacos all the time. Um, but here's the big button. This, and this, this is something I'll throw out occasionally on my Instagram. I, I do it to stir the pot a bit and I make, I do it to make people question good versus bad food. And this man, that's like a whole that, problem yeah. on itself, right? I mean, yeah. down the rabbit hole of that. And I get, I get a lot of clients who are like, Oh, you know what, Mike, what do you think? Should I reduce my sugar? And I'm just like, usually there's a face palm that's happening when I, when I, do <laughs> I'm just like, damn it, Karen. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> sweet potato or eat jelly beans. It's all sugar at the end of the goddamn day. And they're just like, well, I don't understand. And I'm what, 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 I think if I ever do sugar, I'll lean out. I'm like, Oh my God. Um, yeah, so I should eat more sugar. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I throw out the thing about the jelly beans and stuff. Jelly beans are kind of like my, um, my kryptonite. It used to be ice cream and I'm dairy intolerant now. So it's jelly beans. But, um, if we, if we get back to the question, it's like, yeah, okay, you're a performance-based athlete. You have a lot of calories to get in. Doing that from whole unprocessed food might actually be impossible. Um, whereas the high fiber and the high satiety index of those foods, which is normally a very good thing for most people, is actually inhibiting you from recovering appropriately. And this is where I call it dirty carbs. And it's not necessarily dirty, but this is where it's beneficial for an athlete to get processed carbs in but what i mean by processed is this food is engineered it's been broken down already it's been glued back together whatever you want to however you want to describe it it's just easily digestible food right um you might actually have to do that especially if you're doing two a days and i've had athletes that have been doing three a days and it's like it's almost essential that they're consuming a large amount of sugar after every session we're talking like 50 mm -hmm. grams of pure sugar or they won't recover appropriately um, yeah, I mean, you, you need to do it with, with a bit of, with, with a bit of prudence and you need to sort of take a look at, okay, I need to get in very easily digestible, rapidly absorbed, simple carbohydrates. Can I do that without negatively affecting my gut health? And that doesn't mean it's like, Hey, I'm running out and I'm grabbing a bag of jelly beans and tossing them back. I've now I've had athletes do that. I had regional level athletes that used to do that. Um, it's more of like, you need to figure out what's going to work for you. And Usually what I recommend is something like that is in the post-workout period, we're looking at some highly digestible, easily absorbable processed cards, something like it can be Gatorade, it can be highly branched cyclodextrin, it can be, you know, dextrose, maltodextrin, 50-50 mix, something like that has a the lowest level of negative gut health and it's going to benefit you. Um, I have athletes that will eat cereal. Cereal is one of my go-tos at night. If you can find a nice gluten-free cereal, um, Cheerios is a great one. Um, there's, you can easily get 80 grams in a couple cups, right? Um, and yep. that for that athlete who is chasing performance and needs those calories, that is appropriate. For my mom, who is like 76, that's not appropriate, right? Um, and it has to be applied in an appropriate fashion. But um, I've, I've had clients who have been so OCD about their food quality that it's actually hindered their ability to progress as a performance-based athlete where they're absolutely yeah. where they're actually emotionally scared of eating anything beyond like white rice or sweet potato or, or white, even white potato. They're like, ah, you know, the, the glycemic index on white potato is way too high. I can't do that. You're like, and yeah, I'm that's like, the point. <laughs> like, you're a performance-based athlete. I'm like, you actually should be crushing some sugar, but they have a hard time. They just think that and this goes back to the good versus bad food. There really is no good or bad foods, but it's your perception of that where society has really demonized sugar. And yes, in the general population, it's very easy to overconsume hyperpalatable foods that are a mix of fat and sugar. Like it's very easy. You're in a caloric excess and oh, lo and behold, you're fat and you got metabolic syndrome. Different than athletes. Athletes are a different breed. Right? If you're training twice a day and you're chasing performance, your number one goal, 24 hours a day, you should be thinking about recovery. How can I yeah, recover? Absolutely. Because I need to rinse and repeat and do this 365 days a year because that's how I'm going to get better next year. Right. And your ability to do that is like offsetting that. And that's part of that is glycogen repletion. Part of that is bringing down that cortisol response through, through simple carbohydrate intake. 
So you might have to have some dirty carbs and they just need to be timed appropriately and they're not going to have a negative effect. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think that that's, that's another, like you said, that's a, a podcast in and of itself about the good versus bad food. And I think it's, you're, I think you're a follower or a, or a reader, a bit of a stoicism background as well too, is just that idea that there's nothing in life really that's, you know, good or bad, but it's our thinking that makes it so I always ascribe to that something like that too. It's very true, right? It's all kind of how you perceive anything. One of the questions I kind of had specifically within those carb sources that you kind of talked about was, uh, was the individualization in terms of the, uh, the benefits of different types of carb sources, for example. So like I know specifically when I was increasing carbs, I, I went to immediately went to Gatorade and I found if I was having two, three servings of Gatorade a day, that's, you know, upwards of 80 to a hundred grams of sugar a day of actual like sugar, sugar. Um, I found that my joints were a lot worse. My sleep was a little bit more disrupted and it was like, it just didn't work as well. So when I switched back to, uh, I can't remember exactly what the, the blend is, but I use like that carbian powder, which is yeah, no sugar. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it's obviously no sugar. And I use, so if I have three scoops of that across my, or if I have two scoops of that in a Gatorade uh, across my two training sessions, things to be, tend to be a little bit more balanced. Have you seen that in other people in terms of, you know, switching to a carb source that isn't sugar in terms of inflammation and recovery that way as well or no? Yeah, no, totally. Um, and, you know, this gets into like, so very simplistically, I'm like, okay, performance-based athlete, you got to eat sugar. You got to eat simple processed carbs. It does get yeah. more complex than that where you need to look at, okay, what am I taking in? And I, I mentioned this before, that's not going to have, and if I have to take it in large quantities and we're talking like 80 to hundred grams of like simple processed sugar, um, it's not going to have a negative effect on my gut or other systems. And like everybody can be really sensitive to things. Um, and I've seen that before. A very good example would be um, a good friend of mine, Christine Andali. So she's done a lot of self-experimentation based on different sugar types I won't get too much into her personal details on it, but she responds very differently depending on the sugar type where she could handle something from one food source, but then the exact same gram of carbohydrates from another food source or processed food source. And all of a sudden she's like feeling like lightheaded, you know, feeling very nauseous, like feeling like she's going to toss her cookies kind of thing. Um, so she's done a lot of self-experimentation like that. And, and yeah, Gatorade will work with some people, but other people will have the exact effect that you've had. And then that's once again, that goes back to trial and error. There is no mm -hmm. one best option. I mean, I'm very preferential to highly branched cyclodextrin. And really, if it comes down to it, what is it? It's just really expensive sugar. That's really what it is. Like we're looking at yeah. something like dextrose or D-glucose is like a single beach ball, right? That's really, at the end of the day, that's what everything is broken down to. Whether you're eating sweet potato, whether you're crushing jelly beans, or, or whether you're actually buying dextrose from the store and consuming it, it's going to be broken down in that single beach ball. That beach ball is eventually turned into glycogen put into your muscles, right? Um, stuff like maltodextrin would be like five to seven beach balls. Something like a white baked potato would be like 157 beach balls. So you, you eat that, your body has to cleave those off, take some time. That's the glycemic index. It's kind of a moot point for most athletes. I won't get into that too much, but um, something like a highly branched psychodextrin, um, is going to be like 15, 17, 19 beach balls. So it's like a medium chain, sort of a longer chain polysaccharide. Um, the bonus in that is it exits the GI tract really quickly. And that has to do with the molecular weight. It's like, it's drawn out of the tract where if we have something like dextrose because of the molecular weight, it draws water into the GI tract. So it can have some negative GI effects. So that's, it's why I like highly branched psychodextrin. It's very similar to waxy maize starch in, in you know, in, in, in the molecular weight. Um, a brand like Vitargo is from barley um, and it's very similar to waxy maize starch. Those ones for people who have some issues tolerating simple carbohydrates, those seem to work really well. And you need to be careful in the marketing in and around that, especially within the bodybuilding community because they talk about how it has like no glycemic effect and doesn't spike your insulin and it's like you know at the end of the day it's still sugar it's still having an effect on your on your insulin and that's neither good nor bad it just is it's what happens but yes it, it has to be trial and error right and it, you know it might not actually be the sugar that would negatively affect you it might be the coloring it might be some of the fillers sure. that are 
So it can be hard to determine that, right? Um, yep. you know, Gatorade's cheap. And that's why I usually say, hey, you know, that's a good option for folks that, you know, instead of paying like, you know, 70 bucks for a tub of, you know, highly branched psychic dextrin, you could pay like 12 bucks for a tub of Gatorade. Essentially, it's doing the same thing, but it has to, it has to positively, you know, excuse me, has to have an effect or has to have a, not a negative effect. Like the one that you mentioned, the carbion, that's actually a really good one. It's a, it's a blend of like, it's got highly branched cyclodextrin in there. It's got some waxy maize starch in there. It's got like a little bit of coconut water in there, which is mostly, uh, I think it's sucrose. I can't remember off the top of my head. So, I mean, it's a mixture, right? But if it yeah, sits yeah. well with you and you feel good and that's, it really doesn't matter the brand, but I, it's, I always tell people, I'm like, okay, if you're going to take something in, gauge your response after the fact. Like if you've had a really hard workout and you've taken in, let's say a lot of simple carbohydrates, let's say 50, 60 grams or whatever. If you feel good after, this is really oversimplistic thinking, but this is lost on a lot of people. If you feel good, yeah, after, no. you feel like you could go out and do another workout right away, even though you probably shouldn't, that's a good response. But if you feel like crap after, like if you take that in, and you need to have a nap and you feel like crap, then you might want to take a look at that simple carb source and be like, I might need to switch that up. Right. Yeah, no, that's a really good way of looking at it. I think it's a really good way of looking at performance nutrition in general. Um, but it's a, it's something I know Rob Wolf was uh, like, I think that's one of his, his big things was, was uh, when I read wired to eat was just talking about like, you know, eating, I think it was like, he called it his pop tart test or whatever. You feel like having an, if you have two pop tarts and you feel like having a nap right after it's probably not a great source for you in terms of carbs. But, um, I think, I think that's like a loss on a lot of people is I think performance nutrition to me anyway, seems almost even more individualistic than any other aspect of nutrition. Like, you know, to get someone weight loss, you just have to create a calorie deficit, how we do it, you know, it, it matters, but not necessarily as individually as, uh, potentially anyways, as performance, it just seems so different from person to person to person, whether yeah. we're talking about, like I said, quantity of food or quality of food, uh, just seems so, so individualistic that way. Uh, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot more opportunity, I think, for the, the coaching aspect of it. So one of the kind of the questions that I think I just wanted to wrap up with in terms of takeaways for people is, is how, how they can self-monitor or how you even self-monitor with clients in terms of knowing the right things to look for, especially when we took if we talk about uh, total volume of food, like what are some biomarkers where people are like, maybe what I'm doing isn't sustainable on the nutrition side of things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and really what we're looking at, if we're just strictly talking about performance-based nutrition, um, one of the markers I'll look at, and this isn't always the most reliable one, but it's a good marker as a coach to keep a handle on. And, and for yourself is like, where's my hunger at, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Very generally speaking, if you have inappropriate hunger, you're probably in a caloric deficit. What I mean by that is like, it's normal to like wake up, you know, have a glass of water, take a pee, do whatever you do. Um, as long as like, let's say we're not, we're going to leave the coffee out of it for now. Um, Cause that can be hunger suppressive, but it's like, being hungry in the morning is a good thing. Being hungry, you know, an hour before you eat, or let's say a couple hours between meals is totally normal. If you sit down and you look at your food, you're like, God, I got to crush this. That's a really good sign. Being hungry at night means you're in a caloric deficit. Um, so that's a fairly, fairly important marker. And if somebody is chasing performance, I don't want them hungry in the morning, but I don't want them so overfed that they can't finish their meals. Right. And this is really mm -hmm. not, quantitative it's more like subjective so it's like if they're having trouble finishing their meals you're probably overfeeding them and it's you know then, then that's not beneficial either right you need to be able to you need to find that balance um you know other things would be like let's say if we get a we, we move away from the hunger it would be like next day performance that's a really big one too so if somebody has a very hard workout then singular workout in a day let's say they're not even doing doubles you should be relatively recovered within 24 hours. It's like domes is not a reliable sign of anything other than eccentric muscle damage. That's not, that doesn't mean you can't perform, but it should yeah. be like, you should be waking up. You shouldn't feel like you got an anchor tied to your ass. Your limbs shouldn't feel heavy. Um, you should be ready to perform. 
that's generally generally says okay you you have enough calories coming in at least from that singular session to recover and then we take a look at the bigger picture like over the course and this is where in a one like on a day-to-day basis you could go and you could crush like a whole bunch of workouts on a, nothing on fueled on nothing but a warm bowl of water and you'll probably be fine right but in a course of a week or two weeks or three weeks that's when we're going to see the difference is if we're feeding that athlete enough if they can recover and what we'll see is a slow decline right if somebody isn't eating enough and i actually i have an athlete right now who's in this exact situation very good performance based athlete but has the goal of wanting to lean out and it's a legitimate goal this athlete wants to get leaner be so they can be a better athlete so we have them in a slight deficit and everything was going good 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 for the first couple weeks week number three all of a sudden it's just like oh you know what i just don't feel like training today i feel like crap i feel like i need a deload i'm gonna take a day off i feel like i got hit by a bus kind of thing and it's like okay that deficit's starting to catch up to them so they they actually need and it's, you know this is a topic for uh, another podcast would be refeeds what's important <laughs> Feeds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. That's generally generally the sign that that athlete's not being fed enough. If they start to feel like that, usually, um, well, actually, one of the first signs, and you don't always catch it. It depends what kind of coaching you're doing. If you're doing one-on-one coaching, you see that athlete every single day. You can probably pick up on it. Um, if you're doing like remote coaching, and you might talk to them like email, text, or you know Skype, like once a week, twice a week, kind of thing it's the demotivation to train. That's the mental side will always show before the physical side. I was just going to bring that up because I think that's, yeah. so, I, that's a, such an important distinction you made with regards to remote training is and in person, because I, I think myself specifically, it, you need that sober second thought because if you're highly motivated and you know your why there's going to be, you know, there is times when you kind of have to push through that, that shitty feeling and you just go in the gym and train. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to have that coach or that person who's looking at things externally and be like, look, I can look at you in the eye right now and be like, this is you right now is not normal So go <laughs> home and take a day off. Right. Like it's, it's nice to have that, that coach who's able to be like, I understand how, how you think you're, you're ready to go, but you're, you've been just dreading and t- dread. Like for me, it's like, I, I always wake up and I was just like, I'll be in a mood or I'll, I'll just take all day to get to the gym or even if I'm at the gym, it's like a guy that warmed up for five minutes before is now warming up for 25 minutes. Like, and it's just like, I, I think Brent actually said it on your podcast. He, he kind of made the point, I think uh, that he'll go in and he'll just start training. If it doesn't feel good, then he wraps up and like, that's it for the day. Totally. Uh, and it, it's, it's a hard one to do by yourself, I think. Oh yeah, no, totally. I mean, and it's like, just because um, you get some clarification there, just because somebody might be like, Oh my God, I feel horrible today. And you know, I don't feel like training. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're underfed. That can be a sign of being underfed or underfueled. Yeah. Under-covered. Yeah. I mean, there could be lots of other things going on. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, and this is something I talked about with a couple of years back with Jason Layden. Um, he's just like, yeah, how do you, he asked that same question. How do you know when an athlete's overtrained? And I'm like, well, if you can see them on a day-to-day basis, the first thing you'll notice is their mood, right? The yeah. moods will always shift where lots of performance-based athletes, especially high-level, like competitive-based, they're very driven, right? They know what they want. They're willing to sacrifice what, whatever they have to get there. If that athlete comes to the gym and they're dragging ass or they're, they're being bitchy or whatever, then it's like, that might be the first sign to be like, okay, where are you in your training cycle? Do you need a deload? what's going on with your recovery, that kind of thing. And if you see that every day, you can pick that out. If you don't see them every day, it can be a hard one until you might catch it too late. Or if, if you don't have a good communication relationship with that athlete, you might not hear about it. Like I like to be very accessible to my clients. So I get text all day, all the time. And I'm like, Hey, if something's going South, I need to know about it right away. I don't need to know about it. Like from last week, like don't wait on that. Tell me right now, because it might be nothing but it might be something we need to fix. Right. Yeah. And then, and the other thing too, I think I, I can specifically tell based on hitting technical things in training. Like I, I, I joked yesterday, I feel like I could hit my 80% of my cleaning jerk with one foot in the grave at any point. But if I'm missing, you know, regular numbers on a snatch, for example, and I just can't 
mentally dial in with what I'm supposed to do in training. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things where I'm like, yeah, okay, we might need a little bit of a deload. If I'm missing like regular numbers that are just, you know, they're training numbers, right? Like they're not, they're not things that like uh, it should be hard to hit. I'm not trying to PR, but if you're missing things that like would normally feel hard or like it's very self-perceptive, but if the bar feels like a, you're lifting the goddamn world, <laughs> it's probably a sign that you might, might need to take a step back uh, on the overtraining side of things too. The other thing too, I like, you kind of mentioned it hormonally with uh, as well off the top was like I, one of the things I like to bring, bring up with people is like the, and it's, it, I think I got it from Jason Phillips. Is, 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 are you happy? horny and hungry right like you should you talked about the mood you talked about being happy uh you talked about like um the hunger and but i also think like it's it's important that you have some sort of a sex drive like if you're if whether you're attracted to the same sex often sex doesn't matter you should like if you're if whoever you whoever it is that you're attracted to if someone walks by that you know is is attractive it should turn your head right yeah so to give credit where credit is due um, the three H's, the three H's come from James Fitzgerald. James taught me right, that. Right. Right. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Happy, healthy, horny, or sorry, happy, hungry, horny. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, yeah, those are, those are really basic biomarkers, but yeah, I mean, if, yeah, <laughs> if you don't have those, something's up for sure. That means there's dysfunction somewhere for sure in your hormonal system for sure. Yeah, so it's an interesting one for sure for looking at it nutritionally and, and whatnot. But yeah, I think this is an awesome discussion in terms of where what performance uh, nutrition can look like. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat about it. I think it's it's something that we could probably both talk about for another couple hours still. And I, as as we kind of alluded to in the last hour, that like there's a lot of different avenues you can make, you know, further and further podcasts. I think it's both something that we're interested in as well. So. Um, no, I, I'd love to, I'd love to continue the conversation in the future, but thanks so much for coming on. You bet, man. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. So, all right.